0: Warning: This podcast contains mature subject matter, including violence against youths. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Investigation and Evidence, Episode 2: She's Perfect, The Scream Murder. I'm your host, Jake. In 2005, Allison and Frank Contreras moved from the California Bay Area to the southeastern region of Idaho with their three children and five pets to the small city of Pocatello, located in Bannock County. There, they found their dream home on West Whispering Cliffs Drive in a secluded part of the city's north. The 1,600-square-foot house sits on a two-and-a-half-acre lot and is the perfect place for privacy. Due to their residence being outside of the major populated area and them having three cats and two dogs, they usually enlist the help of their niece whenever the family goes away for a weekend. Cassie Jo Stoddard, although just 16, is someone the family knows they can trust and rely on. She may only be in her junior year at Pocatello High School, but she has her sights set high. She wants to be an attorney and eventually a prosecutor. She is dedicated and it shows in her grades as she is a straight-A student and someone who does not drink or use drugs. Her hobbies include art, drawing, and music. When called upon by her aunt and uncle, she has no problem watching the house and feeding the animals, although sometimes she gets lonely in the rural home and will have friends come over to keep her company. On Friday, September twenty-second, two 2006, it is the beginning of one of the weekends where Cassie will be performing her duties as a house sitter. This is a job she takes very seriously and always feels an obligation to make sure that the house remains in order and that the animals are fed and taken care of. That night, Cassie invites her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, over to keep her company. Matt arrives later, around 6pm, and the couple decide they would watch a movie together, but the couple received a call from their classmates and friends, Tori Adamchik and Brian Draper. The boys are also in their junior year at Pocatello High. Brian Draper is a star soccer player who loves music. He is described as a responsible teenager who holds down a full-time job in the summers. Tori is your average teenager but he's a big film buff and has had his sights set on the film industry from a young age. He is striving to be a Hollywood director. He loves films from the 1980s, especially the horror genre. He has been making many films in his spare time and, when appropriate, for class projects. Tori and Brian later arrive at the house to hang out with their friends. Once they arrive, Cassie gives the two boys a tour of the house, showing them the entire split-level home. After the tour of the house concludes, the four relax in the living room and watch the movie Kill Bill, Volume 2. But after a while, Brian and Tori leave, saying they would rather go see a new movie at the theater instead. Later that evening, while Cassie and Matt continue to watch TV, they hear a loud noise in the basement, but think nothing of it, perhaps the house just settling. But soon after, the power in the house suddenly goes out. Not sure of what to do, The couple sits and waits, hoping that the power would come back on. The couple also noticed that one of the Contreras' dogs was sitting at the top of the stairs leading into the basement, occasionally growling and barking, seeing that Cassie felt unsettled. Matt called his mother, asking if he could stay the night at the house with Cassie to help put her at ease. Matt's mother declines the request, but does offer to allow Cassie to spend the night at their house if she felt unsafe. Soon the power came back on, and at around 10.30, Matt's mother arrived at the house to drive him back home for the night, again, extending the invitation to Cassie to come back with them and spend the night at their house. Cassie turns down the invitation, instead electing to stay at the house to ensure that the animals are taken care of and that the house is kept in check. On Sunday, September 24, 2006, the Contreras family was returning home from their trip, The couple's thirteen-year-old daughter was about to make a horrific discovery. She had gone into the living room and stumbled upon a body, covered with blood and stab wounds. Alison Contreras immediately telephoned for an ambulance, but knew that it was too late, saying on the call, "'I need an ambulance at my house now. Somebody looks dead on my floor. Oh my god, there's a dead girl on my floor. She's missing a finger.' The Benock County Sheriff's Office assigned Detective Andy Thomas to the case. He also receives the help of Lieutenant John Gansky of the Idaho State Police. When the two arrive on the scene, they enter through the garage, which has a door that leads into the basement. While going up the stairs, the pair find a trail of blood that they follow into the living room. There, the two detectives see the body of a teenager on the floor. It was the body of Cassie Joe Stoddard. During the preliminary investigation, The detectives quickly rule out burglary, as nothing appears to be missing from the house and there is no sign of forced entry. Through the early stages of the investigation, the detectives conclude that the crime most likely took place at around 11 p.m. on Friday, September 22nd. They believe this murder to be premeditated, but cannot come to a conclusion on a possible motive. She has been stabbed 29 times and from two different knives, indicating the likelihood of multiple attackers. This also indicates that the attackers knew Cassie, as the amount of stab wounds are consistent with the crime being personal. This motivates detectives to speak with Cassie's boyfriend, Matt Beckham, who was with her the night she died. This is convenient, as Matt is also the last known person to see Cassie alive. He tells the detectives that he left at 10.30 when his mother picked him up. Matt's mother was able to verify this story stating she saw Cassie and even offered to let her spend the night at the Beckham home. Matt informs the detectives of the loud noises, the power going off, and the odd behavior from the Contreras' dog. At this point, the police start to consider Matt to be a witness and not a suspect, and Beckham is about to provide some crucial information. Matt mentions to the detectives that the two were not alone for the entire night, as Tori Adamchick and Brian Draper had stopped by earlier to watch a movie with them but left early, saying they wanted to go to the theater to see something new. A few things kept popping up into the detectives' minds as they started to look into the boys. They felt as though they were on the wrong track. The boys come from very respectable parents in upper-middle-class families. They have never been in trouble at school, and have not even had detention one time. The two detectives, however, are still anxious to speak with the pair and clear any suspicion so they decide to head out to the homes of Adam, Chicken, and Draper to interview them. The two are interviewed separately, but give the same story. They say they initially went to the house because Cassie said she was going to have a party, but when nobody else showed up, they put on Kill Bill Volume 2. The two said they became bored and left to go see the movie Pulse at the local theater. They claim to have remained there for the duration of the film, which was roughly 90 minutes then returned to Adam Chick's house and spent the night there. As is normal practice in law enforcement, the police went to verify the alibis, and that is where the problem started. The detectives spoke to every employee who had worked at the theater on the night of September twenty-second, two 2006, and not one could verify the boys being there, including a classmate of the pair who says she positively did not see them that night. Detectives are now questioning their previous judgment, They are hoping that the boys are not involved, but believe that the murder took place at 11 p.m., and that Draper and Adamchick have lied about their whereabouts during that exact time when they otherwise would have no reason to. So the detectives move forward with a second interview, this time at the police station. During the re-interview of Brian Draper, the detectives ask him to give them details about the film that they had seen. He was unable to give anything to the detectives about the film's plot and could not even name one character, claiming that he didn't remember, that he zoned out and wasn't really paying attention. The detectives lean on Brian and accuse him of being involved, and he replies with, You guys are ridiculous. I wouldn't kill my friend. Why would I kill Cassie? As the detectives press on, Brian will not budge, maintaining his story about seeing a movie. The detectives do not have enough to charge him, and decide to release him for the time being, but not before Detective Andy Thomas makes a pledge to him. If you had something to do with this, I'm going to find out. And with that, he is released. Detectives now move on to interviewing Tori. He is presented with the facts that lead detectives to think he is lying. They know he did not go to the movie theater. Tori provides another alibi, one that would also excuse why they lied. Tory claims that the two were searching for cars to break into and steal from. When the detectives ask for more information and ask him to describe colors and types of cars that they broke into, Tory struggles to provide any information. So the detectives ask if the police could find their fingerprints on any of the cars or in any of the areas. Tory replies, no. The detectives tell him they do not believe his story and begin to press him for more detail. Lieutenant Gansky of the Idaho State Police believed that they had him and he was about to confess. Instead, Tory stood pat and asked to speak with an attorney. Detectives, now having to start from scratch and build their own case, get a surprise. A surprise that turns out to be a turning point. Brian and his parents are at police headquarters, and Brian wants to talk. The detectives go to police headquarters and find Brian in hysterics and crying with his parents. He states that the first part of the story is true. And that he and Adamchik went to see Cassie and Matt to watch a movie, then left saying they were going to the theater. But the boys never went to the theater and returned shortly after. They entered the basement through a door that the pair had previously unlocked while receiving a tour of the house, wearing custom made Halloween costumes and gloves. They hid, made some noise, and shut off the power. After Matt left, they could not lure Cassie into the basement with any of the noises or shutting the power off again so they went upstairs to scare her. Draper shifted most of the blame onto Adamchick, saying that it was just supposed to be a prank where they would scare their friend. But that when they went upstairs to confront Cassie, that Adamchick stabbed her several times, repeating, I have to kill her. Brian claims he wanted to go to the police to admit everything, but that Tori said he would kill him if he told anyone. He then tells detectives that they buried the evidence in a place called Black Rock Canyon, and agrees to lead them there. Because Brian has divulged so much information to the detectives and has agreed to lead them to the evidence, they believe that perhaps the theory of a prank gone wrong or gone too far may be true. Brian indicates an area to them at Black Rock Canyon, and the police dig it up. After digging, they find a trove of evidence, including knives, clothes, masks, and gloves. The knives the boys had used had been purchased from a pawn shop, but because they were only sixteen they had to enlist the help of an older classmate. After further investigation, it was determined that the purchasing of the knives was the extent of the older boys' involvement. The bad news for Brian is that the detectives also uncover a videotape, a tape that the boys had destroyed, or so they thought. Once recovered and played, the footage of the tape shocks and disturbs the detectives. It shows the events leading up to and after the murder, including the morning of September 22, 2006, where Brian is walking around the halls of Pocatello High School and speaks to Cassie while she is at her locker. He tells her she is being recorded and asks her to say hi. The video then cuts to the two boys sitting at a table. They start to go into detail about their plans for Cassie stating they have tried to kill people around ten times, but it's never worked out because the victims are never alone, or their parents arrive before the pair can act. Brian then looks at the camera and says, I'm sorry, Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. We have to stick to the plan. And she's perfect, so she is going to die. The film contains other disturbing dialogue, such as Brian saying, I'm horny just thinking about it in reference to the murder they've planned. As the video continues, it switches to the boys driving around Pocatello, describing their plan. This reveals that the pair also planned to kill Matt Beckham, Cassie's boyfriend. With the timestamp on the video being 9.53pm, the boys discuss that they have a grueling task ahead of them that includes killing their friends, stating that they all have to make sacrifices. Based off of the information the police have gathered and other evidence, they theorized what had happened that night. They believed the boys parked down the street from the Contreras' home, got dressed in all black clothing, then put on their homemade masks, gloves, then armed themselves with hunting knives, that the boys walked to the house and re-entered through the door they previously unlocked. The two made loud noises, hoping Matt and Cassie would come downstairs to investigate. After waiting for some time, they realized that the couple was not coming downstairs, so they looked for and found the circuit breaker and shut off the power once again, hoping their victims would come downstairs to investigate. Again, after waiting, and neither Cassie nor Matt coming downstairs, they turned the power back on. At around 10.30 p.m., they heard Matt Beckham leave. Beckham later stated he called Tory after to see if they wanted to hang out, but that when Tori answered the phone, he could barely hear him speak and just assumed he was at the movie theater. It is later theorized he was masking his voice so that Cassie could not hear directly what was going on downstairs. Now, Cassie was alone inside the house, and the two boys once again turned off the power to try to lure her into their trap. But when Cassie did not come like the two had hoped, they decided to go upstairs to her. Brian slammed a closet door at the top of the stairs to scare Cassie, who was lying on the couch. Cassie jumped up and demanded who was there. Then the pair brutally attacked her and stabbed her twenty-nine times. 12 of which being fatal. Immediately after the murder, the pair were in their car and had turned their camera back on to talk about what had happened. Brian states, We just killed Cassie. This is not a fucking joke. I stabbed her in the throat, and I felt her lifeless body disappear. And Tori replies, Shut the fuck up. We need to get our act straight. They also speak about going to get movie tickets to form an alibi. The police have all the evidence they need. Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik are arrested and charged with murder. The videos contain much more evidence, including plans to kill other classmates and perform school shootings to increase their stats. The boys have a desire to be notorious like the film Scream. They name drop Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the Hillside Stranglers as inspiration. After further investigation, the detectives obtain a book owned by Tori Adamchik. It depicts violent drawings and a list of plans for the night of the murder. In Brian Draper's belongings, an 8,000-word essay is discovered. It is about a school shooting, and he even has a date set, exactly two weeks after the murder of Cassie. Through the films and his writing, the detectives conclude that Brian Draper was inspired by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. The shooters at Columbine High School in Colorado, he mentions Eric and Dylan continuously in the tapes. The basement tapes were a series of home videos created by Harris and Klebold prior to their shooting at Columbine High School. An agent with the FBI stated it appeared as though Adamchick and Draper were trying to emulate the shooters from Colorado in their own series of videos. When the case moved to trial, the boys are tried separately, but both plead not guilty. The defense attorney for Tory Adamchick places the blame on Brian Draper. He acknowledges that Tory is present in the videos, but that Tory had only planned for it to be a prank and that he was playing one of his many characters. The defense cites Tori's previously homemade horror films as evidence that it was not uncommon to act in this type of behavior. They state that Tori had a curiosity and fantasy world within horror films, and that everything in the videos leading up to the murder was just dialogue of one of his many projects. Brian Draper's lawyer presented a similar defense. He blamed Tori for the killing, saying that Brian had thought they were just going to make a film of them scaring Cassie but then Tory attacked her. Brian admitted to stabbing Cassie, but only under the order of Tory. In both trials, the court is shown all of the film evidence. And in the courtroom for both trials is Anna Stoddard, Cassie's mother. She must endure watching the videos of the plans to kill her daughter not once, but twice. She recalls dropping Cassie off at school just 30 minutes before the recording made by Brian of Cassie at her locker in the hallway. The prosecution states that the tapes show that the boys know the difference between right and wrong, but don't care. It shows no sign of a conscience, and that they do not value human life. At one point, Tory states that murder shouldn't be illegal, because when you do something like that, it just makes people want to do it more. The motive for the killing appears to be fame and notoriety. At the end of each trial, the verdicts are the same. Guilty. At sentencing, the two are given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole, and an additional sentence of 30 years to life for conspiracy to commit murder. The two are serving their sentences at the Idaho State Correctional Facility in Ada County, but are housed in separate units. After the trial, the Draper and Adamchick families both relocated to be closer to their sons, and they still visit them often. Tory Adamchick still professes his innocence, pushing the blame onto Brian Draper. His mother, Shannon, has been advocating for his exoneration since the conclusion of his trial. Shannon wrote a book called The Guilty Innocent in Defense of Her Son, telling the story of the trial from her perspective. Both have since filed appeals separately. Chick's first appeal was in 2010, and Draper's was in 2011. Draper was looking to have his conviction vacated or be given a limited life sentence that could allow for him to be released on parole. Both of the boys had their appeals denied. However, Draper did have his conviction for conspiracy to commit murder removed, as it was deemed that the jury was poorly instructed. A new case law in 2012 provided some hope for the Adam, Chick, and Draper families that their sons would be released, as Miller v. Alabama determined that mandatory life sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. Though, any hope for the two to have their sentences reduced was exhausted as the courts, even with this new case law ruling, still upheld their sentencing. In 2016, chick applied for post-conviction relief, which is a process where the defendant will enter evidence previously not stated at their trial, as he believed some character witness testimony could have changed the outcome of the case, and his lawyer refused to enter it, believing that it would allow the prosecution to enter even more damning evidence. This application was rejected. chick appealed the decision, but it was upheld in 2017. His most recent appeal was rejected in November 2019. The Contreras family has not returned to the house full-time on West Whispering Cliffs Drive since the murder, stating that their dream home was turned into a nightmare that weekend. Each member of the family claims to have had an unexplained encounter in the home. After the murder, Cassie's Aunt Allison lost her job and fell into a depression, and her cousin later attempted suicide. The house has been listed for sale every year after the murder, and as of 2014, the Contreras were still trying to sell it. That year, Frank, Cassie's uncle, stated that he was willing to sell the house for the amount they owed on it, just $138,000. Whether it was a premeditated murder to gain fame and notoriety, or just a prank that somehow got way out of hand, it seems very unlikely that Draper or Adam Chick will ever be released. Even if it did all start out as a prank, it drastically changed the lives of four families forever. Thank you for joining me on Investigation and in Evidence True Crime. Do you have questions, comments, or concerns? Or do you know of a case that you would like to hear on this podcast? If so, contact me at ietc.podcast2020 at gmail.com. That's ietc.podcast2020 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at jake_narrator. Once again, thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jake, and I hope you join me next time. Cheers.